Welcome to our podcast series, Getting to the Core Issues. Hello, I'm Joanne Boada. And I'm Marianne Harmston. Each segment, we will interview healthcare innovators whose models will help transform the healthcare delivery system and provide solutions to the healthcare puzzle. Have you ever visited your doctor, come home and realize you didn't hear anything past your diagnosis, or felt like your doctor wasn't taking into consideration all the possible factors impacting your health? In this podcast segment, Marianne and I will introduce you to an innovative new training program developed in the UK for doctors and healthcare professionals that uses neuroscience to improve doctor-patient communication and patient engagement. We are honored to have with us two very accomplished guests who are the founders of Brain First, Diane Irvine and Denise caffarelli Dees. Both women have over 30 years of experience in the healthcare device industry and education working in systems all around the world. Diane has focused on new surgical technologies and the development of required training courses and professional certifications for medical device companies, surgeons, and clinical teams to support advances in best practice. Denise is an expert in speech pathology and audiology and educator who received a graduate study grant from the U.S. Office of Education, has lectured for the Royal College of Speech Sciences, and received the W. Cheney Award for Outstanding Clinician in Speech and Hearing. Welcome, Diane and Denise. Welcome, ladies. This is Marianne. We are thrilled to have you both with us today. I'd like to begin by talking about the fact that many specialists in the medical and healthcare field have expertise within their own specialty, for instance, in situations like cardiac surgery. However, we realize that surgical skills and medical knowledge alone are not enough to ensure an optimal patient journey. Our understanding is that you have developed an accredited training program for doctors and healthcare professionals to develop their interpersonal skills based upon neuroscience. This is a rather new field. Can you elaborate a little bit about this process? The aim of Brain First is to turbocharge the brain power of the doctor, the healthcare professional, so that even under very challenging or stressful situations, they can make better quality decisions for greater impact, develop more efficient engagement within their team, with their patients and the patient's families to perform at their best so that they can successfully address impediments to best practice get where they want their patient to be in a more efficient way based upon an ethical, evidence-based neuroscience approach. In essence, we use neuroscience to help them align all the brains in the room on the same page quickly and make them more receptive to take the necessary action. In layman's terms, we're talking about the fact that regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of where you live, regardless of what continent you may be on, a brain is a brain is a brain. The components of the brain, the structure of the brain, and how it responds to information is basically the same. I'd like to understand how that works a little bit more. Can either of you recall an instance in your own life or with someone you know in which a medical treatment or surgery didn't have the desired outcome or there was a misunderstanding or miscommunication. I have a perfect example. A while back, my mother was having some knee surgery and the surgery went fine, 
But afterwards, a few days later, she broke out in a rash all over her body. And I had asked the doctors and the nurses, well, is there something else wrong? And they had kind of dismissed it and said that this might be due to uh, an allergic reaction to the sheets on the bedding in the hospital, which didn't quite make sense because I would think in a hospital that they would be using, you know, hypoallergenic detergents. We kind of went along with it and they said, you know, she was going over to a skilled nursing facility to do her physical rehabilitation. And they said there was a doctor there and the doctor would there would take a look at it and decide what the next steps for treatment were for this allergic reaction she was apparently having. So that was on a Friday. They transferred her over to the skilled nursing facility. Then by Sunday, she had developed severe pain in her stomach and eventually had blacked out. And so they transported her back to the emergency room at the hospital. And at that point, they did a series of tests. And then they called me in and were telling me that she had tumors all over her liver, which I sat there and I processed it, having been in the industry for so long. And I said, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I said, because I knew that her primary care doctor had done a complete physical workup on her before she went and had the surgery. Otherwise, she wouldn't have had the surgery. And through the course of that testing, they should have indicated tumors all over her liver. And not only that, she wasn't jaundice. And you know, usually when you have a liver condition, you're jaundice. So I said, well, that doesn't make sense. Their course of action was, well, she's elderly because at the time she was in her early 80s. And, um, you know, she's lived a great life. And this is one of those things. She was apparently bleeding out through her liver. And I said, well, my mother may be in her 80s, but she does yoga twice a week. She walks with her walking club. She's got a social life that far surpasses mine. I said, and she lives alone. She still drives. I said, she's a very active person. I don't understand, you know, that I can't accept this diagnosis. They never checked with her primary care doctor. So I had to call them. They ended up saying, we can do a, a fix. We'll go in and see if we can cauterize the vein that's, you know, obviously hemorrhaging in her liver. And then if that stabilizes, we'll transfer over to skilled nursing and then you can work with your doctor to deal with this cancer situation. And I said, well, okay, that's fine. We did that. When she went over to the skilled nursing, her doctor took a look at everything. And apparently the doctors were that at the hospital were reading the x-rays and the imaging wrong. What they thought were tumors were actually the liver was so swollen, the vessels were so swollen that it looked like tumors but it really wasn't. And it was an allergic reaction to some medication that she was taking, blood thinners, that she apparently, you know, wasn't, her system wasn't able to handle and was causing this internal bleeding. But had I not intervened and made that decision for her, she wouldn't be here today. And her primary care doctor was furious because they obviously made a mistake and wasn't hearing everything we had to say about my mother, her activity and her health, and taking that into consideration in what they were describing as their do-nothing approach and, and she's lived a great life and that just wasn't acceptable. And this is one of the many situations that address in the brain first training. The specialism, the surgical specialism could be successful, but just like in your case, it wasn't the surgery alone. Something else was happening. I can imagine that as stressful as it was for you, mm -hmm. it was also stressful for the surgeon and the surgeon. Right. And they are 
jumping at trying to come up with a solution and they wound up getting fixed under their own concern and stress to try to find something quickly. It just happened to be wrong and it, they were blindsided to mm -hmm. the other expert in the room, which was you, because you were the expert of your mother and her lifestyle. Right. They were the expert in the knee surgery, but not the expert in the room regarding your mother. And you're quite right, being able to listen. These are some of the things that we address in Brain First, making sure that they develop a greater understanding of decision-making, how to overcome the natural instinct that humans have to try to come to a very quick solution, even if right. it's not the full resolution of the problem, and then have a better awareness of the individual situation, and then to be able to communicate it. These extra communication, interpersonal, leadership, decision-making skills are not things that you get from medical school. That's what we're trying to address here. Joanne and I were discussing that there are more than one occasions in which information which is provided by the doctor was either not understood or the doctor seemed unable to take your specific situation into account and based on the recommendations they were making. As you said, when you're in a stressful situation, sometimes one does not hear the other. And Joanne, you had another example of that, I believe. I think it was my mother-in-law was the example. The doctor had ordered a series of tests for her and some medication. And the nurse comes in with the medication, puts it down. We're sitting there and my mother-in-law says, I think I took that already, that medication already. And when we looked on her chart, said to the nurse, she's already had that an hour ago. If I had not said something to her about it, she would have taken that pill again and it would have caused her harm. You know, it was another medication, that blood pressure medication. If you take too much of it, it's going to create an adverse reaction to it. But they're so busy and they've got so many things on their plate that they just come in and they see one thing and they think, oh, I'm, I'm doing it. But they really should be looking back and communicating and saying to her, I'm giving you this medication right now. This is what it is to give the patient an opportunity to say, wait a minute, it, something's not right here. But that dialogue didn't happen. We've come across this time and time again over our experience working in the field, which is why we decided it was time to do something about it. In addition to developing greater understanding of how decisions under stress and challenges are important, the communication skills are particularly key. And mm -hmm. that is how you get the information from the patient. So they need to understand that they alone aren't the only one responsible for their patient's clinical outcome. It's how the patient follows the instructions. Do they understand what's being said? Are they being listened to? I'll paraphrase Nancy Klein. The doctor is the expert in their field, but the patient is the expert in their life. And it's the job of the doctor to bring out that expert knowledge, brain to brain. In your mother-in-law's case, it's being able to say, thank goodness she did with you. Right. I've taken this before. You get just so focused in your, in your little box. This can be a challenge because not everybody is able to speak up or have someone with them to act as an advocate on their behalf. So that's why we bring it back to the brain so that it's not a cultural healthcare 
practice specific. A brain is basically three main parts. The oldest part is the cerebellum. The brainstem controls our automatic body functions. It's sometimes referred as the reptilian brain. The second oldest part is the limbic system with the amygdala and the hippocampus. And this is found in the first mammals. So it's our mammalian, or sometimes referred to as our chimp brain. And that's where we get our emotions, our memory, and it's also our survival mechanism. And it is the survival mechanism, this amygdala hijack, that triggers the fight, the flight, or the freeze reflex when faced with danger. Now, in today's society, we aren't as exposed to physical danger as our ancestors were. It can be triggered by a word. It can be triggered by the word cancer, hearing loss, even surgery. And it means that this more primitive part of our brain takes control over everything. It effectively hijacks not only our brainstem, our physical control of the body, but also this third part, the newest part of our brain, which is the neocortex. That's the thinking rational part of our brain. And under stress, under triggers like cancer, like surgery, everything goes out the window and only goes away for a while. Since everyone is basically hardwired the same way, mm -hmm. you've taken the ability to analyze the way people receive communication and develop programs that are scalable across continents so that information that's exchanged between the physician and the patient actually result then in a better outcome. In the case of my family members, I had a family member who had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And sitting in that room and getting that diagnosis, all she heard was, I have lymphoma. And she even told me, I didn't hear anything the doctor had to say. What, what is he recommending for treatment? What's, what are my next steps? I had been there taking notes. So having that other person in the room was very helpful because I could go back to the notes and review with her again. This is what the doctor said, and this is the next course. These are your options. Had that communication been delivered to her in a different way, she would have heard beyond that diagnosis. Exactly, because it is possible to manage this reflexive action as long as the professional is keeping the brain in mind. And it's these skills, these interpersonal skills, the communication skills to in keep the patient engaged, to make sure what's going on in their head is how we can get through and to have the optimal outcome. Because if they didn't have another person, and this is what we would find, weeks, months later, the penny finally drops and the questions that they wanted to ask at the time are now starting to come up and you've wasted all that time. And exactly. In, and in some cases, you don't have months. That's right. You need to make an on-the-spot decision. We understand that this course leads to a postgraduate diploma or in the States, a certification. Can you tell us more about that and how long does this training take? How much time is required by the physician, Diane? We have created professional short courses. So they have a short time. They come, there's some blended learning. They do an online piece. They work with us for two days and then they go away and there will be maybe three or four patient case reports. Why we can do a postgraduate qualification like this in such a short space of time is that the clinicians and the healthcare professionals that we're dealing with are already at that point in their career. 
they've already got their degree, their CMEs, their CPDs, and their certifications. So what we're doing is we are providing the knowledge and the skills that are going to help them better respond in these situations. And we are certificating and providing additional competencies. So there's a high level of access onto this program and they will work very hard before they come while they're there and once they've gone. But we have found that professionals like this approach. They don't want to spend two years doing online modules and doing things that basically they they just want the tools from us. They don't need to go through all of the work that Denise and I have done. So that's how we do it. We use what is um, educational levels and that's why we're able to go across countries. So for example, here in Europe, if you want to do a master's in clinical education, you need 120 credits of level seven. I could do 30 credits at the Cleveland Clinic. I could do 30 credits in Paris. I could do 30 credits. As long as I have my points and I get to 120 points, it doesn't matter what institutions or where I take them. So that's what allows everybody to access our qualifications and make them trans. Well, in, in, in describing that, um, there are, I guess, certain qualifications along with the credits, in terms of where they've gotten their credits, you've mentioned some very high ranking, such as the Cleveland Clinic and others that are uh, very accredited and well-known institutions. Um, but can, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about how it is that your course has been internationally recognized? The way it works, you, you have to be a recognized, registered, audited, um, education institution. That's the first thing. Before you access the delivery of anything, you have to be vetted and policed and approved. And once you've gone through that process, when you create a qualification, the qualification itself is an independent entity. A qualification is then a regulated thing, which means it doesn't matter where that qualification pops up, it's regulated. It will always be delivered the same way, with the same content, with the same assessment, to the same level. So, for example, the Cleveland Clinic may well decide that they would like to run this. They are an accredited education institution. They would have access to a regulated qualification. But what we find is that most of these organisations are not, at this moment in time, focusing on this short professional course. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I asked Denise, uh, we have the specialists, we have the surgeons, we have the physicians, but many of them work as part of a very coordinated and cohesive team. So does do your courses also uh, engage teams as well? Yeah, we can yeah. do a full with it, in particular with the human factors. Um, it's a natural development to do it as clinical team training and many hospitals will actually do that with us um, and again just the key things of human factors you have communication decision making leadership skills and the most important one which is situational well we certainly understand that uh, as a matter of fact in today's paper in the uk there was an article about the difference in the application of care 
between some of the major hospital systems. And there was a call by the head of the NHS, I believe, for a, uh, a system of training for incorporating a set of standards that would be both at what they consider smaller independent hospitals, as well as the ones that have achieved certain standards within the UK. So the, the scalability of uh, setting standards and then using standards, and then most importantly, communicating between a physician and a, and a patient yep. so that outcomes become better, time is used more efficiently, people become healthier, and the training can be, uh, especially with the younger people coming out of medical school today, they wanna make a difference and they have limited time, they want to do the right thing, and certainly the patient benefits by that. So yeah. congratulations to Diane and Denise for coming up with a, a program that's initiated both independently as part of a larger organization, which is Healthcare Skills, and um, we are thrilled that we were able to help you as you launch your new programs. Uh, they're certainly needed all over the world. And in closing, is there anything else you'd like to say? I'd just like to thank you for, for inviting us to take part in your podcast today. And we wish you well. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you, if anyone wants to access your training, how do they contact you? You can contact our, our website. Brain First is there on www.healthcareskills. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for being on our podcast. Thank you. And good luck with your Brain First training program. Thank you. Thank you.